Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 13, the book of Revelation, chapter 5. Uh, today's lesson is going to be fairly complex at times, uh, so I hope you're, you're ready to focus. Uh, some of what we discuss might at first seem to be like a great deal of trivia, but I assure you it's not. When these details that we'll discuss are lacking, that is when Revelation becomes unintelligible. Now we began Revelation chapter 5 last week. We spent some time with making the connection between it and the book of Daniel, especially chapters 7 and 12. Mostly what we did was an overview. Even so, as is our custom, we're going to briefly review. Perhaps the most important thing that we can take from the first six verses of Revelation chapter 5 is that John's vision of the one sitting on the throne with a scroll in his hand is directly tied to Daniel's vision of the ancient one sitting on the throne with the one like a son of man approaching him. So the one sitting on the throne in John's Revelation 5 vision is the same as the ancient one sitting on the throne in the Daniel 7 vision. And that person is God. Further, the one like a son of man in Daniel 7 is directly tied to the lamb who was slaughtered in Revelation 5. And that person is Messiah Yeshua. However, this identification connecting the one like the son of man to the lamb who was slaughtered is also connected to another and different description of this same person in verse 5 that we're going to explore shortly. We also learned of the connection between Daniel 12 verse 4 where it speaks of sealing up the book of knowledge about the future. This book that God gave to Daniel in a vision we're going to connect that with John's version, a vision rather, of the scroll sealed with seven seals in Revelation chapter 5, which God handed over to the Lamb who was slaughtered, that it would finally be opened and its contents revealed. So essentially, Revelation chapter 5 is a fulfillment of Daniel 12 verse 4. Although we must acknowledge it's only a partial fulfillment because even though the contents of it are being revealed to John, the actions that the content describes have yet to happen. Since we only got a little way into Revelation 5 last time, let's reread it all to get our feet set. So, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1537. 
1537. Revelation chapter 5. Next I saw in the right hand of the one sitting on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? No one in heaven, on earth or under the, uh, under the earth, was able to open the scroll or look inside of it. I cried, I cried, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look inside of it. And one of the elders said to me, don't cry. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has won the right to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw standing there with the throne and the four living beings in the circle of the elders a lamb that appeared to have been slaughtered. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the sevenfold spirit of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the twenty-four elders fell down in front of the lamb. And each one held a harp, gold bowls filled with pieces of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals because you were slaughtered. At the cost of blood, you ransomed for God persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You made them into a kingdom for God to rule, kohanim, priests, to serve him, and they will rule over the earth. And then I looked and I heard the sound of a vast number of angels, thousands and thousands, millions and millions they were all around the throne, the living beings and the elders, and they shouted out, Worthy is the slaughtered lamb to receive power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and praise. And I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, yes, everything in them saying, to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb belong praise, honor, glory, and power forever and ever. And the four living beings said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. The mighty angel of verse 2 is himself unable to unseal the scroll that God holds. This tells us of the extraordinary nature of this sealed document. In fact, verse 3 informs us that no one in heaven is able to open it. Not even the powerful seraphim who stay so intimately close to God, guarding his throne, not even they are worthy of the honor. No one on earth is worthy either. Thus no powerful ruler, no holy man, no prophet, nor sage, whether Gentile or Hebrew, no one of the human race is deemed worthy. And finally, no one under the earth can open it, we're told. That is, no one from the realm of the dead which is also where demons are thought to live. Thus not even Satan, the most powerful demon, is worthy and able to receive this sealed document or even to look inside of it to know its contents. I mean, let that sink in for a minute. Because 
and up until the moment that uh, that the vision of the contents of the scroll was revealed to John in the early 90s AD only God and Daniel knew what was written in them until that moment only they knew the terrifying catastrophic events that was going to mark the end of history but the beginning of the final redemption of planet earth and its inhabitants but once the vision was given and John wrote it down Satan and his minions found out the seraphim found out the angels found out and those among humanity who trust God's word found out over the next several weeks you too will learn the sobering truth how should we take what we're going to learn we read in Daniel that knowing the contents of that book or scroll made Daniel physically ill knowing how important the contents were made John cry uncontrollably because there seemed to be no one who was worthy to unseal the information so to say that the contents of this scroll with seven seals is unsettling <laughs> that's an understatement but unsealing the scroll was more than only knowing the future it was essentially the inaugural event that would bring it about however John's crying turns to elation as one of the 24 elders says that indeed there is someone who has won the right to unseal the scroll he says the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David now this description of the worthy party directly connects that person to Israel it can be no other he was a member of one of the 12 tribes a member of the tribe of Judah now we first read of a similar description of this person in a verse that even the rabbis acknowledge is messianic and it's from Genesis Genesis chapter 49 we read in verses 9 through 12 Judah is a lion's cub my son you stand over the prey he crouches down and stretches like a lion like a lioness who dares to provoke him the scepter will not pass from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his legs until he comes to whom obedience belongs and it is he whom the peoples will obey tying his donkey to the vine his donkey's colt to the choice grapevine he washes his clothes in wine his robes in the blood of grapes his eyes will be darker than wine his teeth whiter than milk now while it might seem 
So, because the phrase, the Lion of Judah, oh, that seems so well known among Christians. It's written into countless songs. And it's especially beloved among evangelical and and Hebrew roots believers. You might think that it's present in numerous places in the New Testament. In fact, this one mention of it in Revelation 5 is the only time in the entire Bible that the title, The Lion of Judah, is found. Further, where we read in Revelation 5, verse 5, that this Lion of Judah is identified also as the Root of David, this is the first time we hear the term Root of David. Even though it might seem otherwise to us. Rather, in other places in the Bible, what we find is that Messiah is not said to be the root of David, but rather the root of Jesse. Ishai. Jesse's is David's father. Isaiah 11.10. On that date, the, the root of Yishai, Jesse, which stands as a banner for the peoples, the Goyim, the nations, the Gentile nations, will seek him out. And the place where he rests will be glorious. So even though a name still is not given to us, the Messiah is identified as being from a specific tribe of Israel, Judah, and from a specific family of Judah, that of Jesse's son, King David. We should also notice that Messiah Yeshua is assigned attributes very much in the manner and circumstance of Moses. Whereas Moses is given tablets from God that only he can receive, Yeshua is given a scroll with seven seals that only he can receive. Both men are expected to announce the contents of these documents to God's people. This comports with the prophecy of Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 19. Adonai will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses, from among yourselves and from among your own kinsmen. You are to pay attention to him, just as when you were assembled at Horev and requested uh, Adonai your God, don't let me hear the voice of Adonai my God anymore or let me see this great fire ever again. If I do, I'll die. On that occasion, Adonai said to me, They are right in what they are saying. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their kinsmen. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I order them. I order him. Whoever does not listen to my words, which he will speak in my name, he will have to account for himself to me. So this passage in Deuteronomy lends weight that the Lamb of Revelation chapter 5 is the prophet like Moses that comes not from Gentiles, but from Israel. Verse 6 explains that John's vision now unveils that the Lamb that appears to be slaughtered came forward and he took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. Thus, between what is said in verses 5 and 6, we understand that the Lion of Judah, of the root of Jesse, 
and the lamb who was slaughtered, this is the same person. But now we have a conundrum, one that is bothered. It has divided the rabbis for centuries. Although it's not directly from the book of Revelation that the conundrum arises for Jews, but rather from the scriptures that Revelation alludes to, we find that the Messiah is at once a lion and a lamb. I mean, from the world of nature, this is making the predator also the prey. From the world of Judaism, it is making the fierce one also meek and vulnerable and making the warrior as the sacrifice. The allusion to the lamb that is slaughtered comes from Isaiah 53. It's one of the most amazing, spot-on prophecies that includes details making Yeshua's identification as the subject of this passage unmistakable. He is the Messiah. Listen to this. We're just going to go through part of it. We'll do verses 7 through 10 of Isaiah 53. Though mistreated, he was submissive. He did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to be slaughtered, like a sheep silent before its shearers, he did not open his mouth. After forcible arrest and sentencing, he was taken away, and none of his generation protested his being cut off from the land of the living for the crimes of my people who deserve the punishment themselves. He was given a grave among the wicked. In his death, he was a rich man. Although he had done no violence, had said nothing deceptive, it pleased Adonai to crush him with illness to see if he would present himself as a guilt offering. If he does, he will see his offspring and he will prolong his days and at his hand Adonai's desire will be accomplished. Yet despite these details that fit Yeshua's final hours to a T, most rabbis will insist that this prophecy is not about Yeshua or frankly about any Messiah. This is describing the nation of Israel. That is, Israel, they say, is the lamb led to be slaughtered. Now I can only surmise that the reason the rabbis choose such an interpretation is because any other would surely lead them to the reality that the Messiah of Christianity, Jesus, is the Messiah that God had sent first and foremost to Israel. But now Israel and Judaism insist upon waiting for another and different Messiah. One that will never come. In John's vision, the Lamb is standing near God's throne as part of the inner circle, if you would, that consists of the 24 elders and the four living beings, the seraphim. Now the thing to, to be most noticed about this Lamb is simply that he's alive. How can a slaughtered lamb now be alive? It's only possible through the miracle of resurrection. 
even more Christ characteristic as being that of a lion only happened in the most cosmically ironic way. It was by means of his being slaughtered as a lamb. I mean, I don't want us to miss this vital connection, so I ask for all of your attention. The means by which Christ overcame in order to become that divine conqueror was through his death and later on through resurrection. See, this is exactly the same scenario, the same fate that awaits his disciples, believers of all ages. This leads us back to what I've mentioned a couple of times now in our study of this apocalypse. It is that in the Old Testament, God delivered his oppressed people from death. But in the New Testament, God delivers his oppressed people through death. Thus it was through his death as the slaughtered lamb that Christ overcame to win the victory. A victory that gave him and only him the right to stand before God in heaven and open that sealed scroll of Revelation chapter 5. At the same time, we saw throughout Revelation chapters 2 and 3, that's the letters to the seven churches, that God's admonition to the believers of these congregations was always to be what? Overcomers. Of what? Of sin and of tribulation. Be overcomers in order for them to become conquerors who win the victory. What was the reward that was mentioned for believers winning the victory? The reward stated in those seven letters. It was not being rewarded in material or temporal things that happen in this present life on earth. Rather, the pattern was that the divine rewards for the victory over uh, of overcomers spoken of in each of the seven letters meant receiving them after physical death. In letter one, the, real, the reward is being able to eat from the tree of life, meaning we enter into eternal life as opposed to eternal destruction. In letter two, we won't be hurt by the second death. Second death only comes after the first death. In letter three, we'll receive a new name that's inscribed on a white stone. By the way, this represents a not guilty verdict for our sins and therefore it is our permission, it's our entry ticket into the kingdom of God. In letter four, we're rewarded with rule over the nations during the millennium. In letter 5, we'll be given white garments, that is, we'll be imbued with perfect purity, which is available only in heaven. It's the only place it exists this time. In letter 6, we're going to be kept from the time of trial. Coming upon the whole world, we won't experience the trial. You know why? 
because we won't be physically alive to experience it. And letter seven said we'll sit on the we'll sit with Messiah on his throne. Again, something that clearly happens only during the millennium, only for the resurrected saints. In order to be resurrected, what do you have to be first? Dead. I'll say it again so that you don't misunderstand. Notice that every one of these rewards for believers who overcomes, as written in the letters to the seven believing congregation in Asia, it's not meant to indicate what we receive during our present lives or in this present age, but rather what happens through our death and only after our death and resurrection, just as it was for Yeshua. Was he not said to be the first fruits? Some of it is even received after the end of the present age in the millennial age. Thousand year reign of Christ. Now, this lamb that was slain but is now alive also had this strange appearance to John of having seven horns and seven eyes which John says is the sevenfold Spirit of God. Now remember that the number seven can carry the sense of finality. That is, finality meaning something that is completely finished. And nothing can be, nor does it need to be, added or subtracted from it. Rather, the state at which it has arrived has achieved perfect wholeness. Thus, this abundance of sevens that we find from beginning to end in Revelation indeed signals the end of a long process that will never again be revisited or repeated. So we must think of all the sevens we encounter, both in their individual and in their collective terms. Collectively, the profuse amount of sevens signals finality, a perfect end. Taken individually, each use of the number seven has a little different sense to it. Biblically, for instance, horns, seven horns. Horns speak of power and of kings. Seven is the ideal number that speaks of divine influence. Thus, the lamb with seven horns is symbolic of divinely given power. A power that is perfect. It cannot be defeated. The seven eyes, it's a bit more complex. They seem to be a direct allusion to Zechariah chapters 3 and 4. The last half of Revelation 5 chapter 6 is very difficult. So are Zechariah chapters 3 and 4, by the way. But we're going to do our best to make sense of it, but it is complicated. The context for the Zechariah passages we're about to read, the ones that John is alluding to, is that God is addressing the current high priest of Israel. Joshua is his name, about the issue of rebuilding the temple immediately following the Babylonian exile. 
without reading the entirety of those Zechariah chapters, the pertinent verses for us say this. This is from Zechariah 3, 6-9. through 9. Then the angel of Adonai gave Joshua this warning. Adonai Sefaot says this, If you will walk in my ways, obey my commission, judge my house and guard my courtyards, then I will give you free access among these who are standing there. Listen, Kohen, Kohen uh, Gadol Yahshua, High Priest Joshua. Listen, High Priest Joshua. Both you and your colleagues seated here before you, because these men are a sign that I'm going to bring my servant Zemach. Zemach means sprout. For look at the stone I've put in front of Joshua. On one stone are seven eyes. I will engrave what is to be written on it, says Adonai Zevaot, and I will remove the guilt of this land in one day. So in this passage, the seven eyes on the stone that set before Joshua the high priest are in some mystical way related to removing guilt from the land of Israel. And the guilt removal is going to happen in one day. Also notice that the rebuilding of the temple serves as a sign and a symbol that one day God is going to bring his servant Zemach. Zemach means sprout or it can also mean branch. This is a messianic prophecy as it points to the branch or sprout that comes from Jesse, father of David. So the seven eyes involves some process of the Messiah removing Israel's guilt by the only legal means that's available, a sacrifice of atonement at a time when the temple is standing and operational. But then in Zechariah chapter 4, continuing on with the same scene, same Bible characters as we just read about in Zechariah chapter 3, we read, Then the angel that had been speaking with me returned and aroused me, as if he were waking someone up from being asleep. And he asked me, What do you see? I answered, well, I've been looking at a menorah. It's all of gold with a bowl at its top and seven lamps on it and seven tubes leading up to the lamps at its top. Then a little further down in Zechariah 4, at verse 10, for even someone who doesn't think much of a day when such minor events take place will rejoice at seeing the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. So these seven are the eyes of Adonai that range about all over the earth. So in Zechariah 4, the seven eyes are said to symbolize the seven lamps, and these seven eyes are for the purpose of allowing God to see what's going on over all, all the earth. Thus, in this case, the seven eyes symbolically represent God's complete knowledge. Nothing can be hidden from him. If we bring this understanding now from Zechariah across 
to Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, then the meaning is something along the lines of the Lamb that was slain, but now is alive through resurrection, holds complete power. That's the meaning of the Lamb with the seven horns. As well as possesses complete knowledge. The Lamb also has seven eyes. He has complete knowledge of everything that's going to happen throughout all the earth. And since God has given His Son Yeshua a kingdom to rule, and that kingdom consists of the earth, and everything that exists upon it, every activity that occurs upon it, then it would follow that Messiah would have to have complete power and complete knowledge over that kingdom. And that's exactly what we see being given here. But now the issue of the seven spirits of God again arises. Now I know we've discussed this before, probably way more than you wanted to. And I've told you that in Jewish thought of that day, there was a belief that seven named archangels were near to God in heaven and served Him. And this is what's being spoken about here. Another possibility is that it is referring to the complete work of the Holy Spirit. And it's my opinion that that is likely what's being referred to. However, there was yet another mainstream Jewish thought in the first century AD when Revelation was written down. About this matter that we really can't discount, I want to take just a moment to discuss it. In non-biblical Jewish works, such as First Enoch, we find a lot of references to the Jewish Son of Man traditions. And we've talked about that rather extensively. In which we also repeatedly encounter another strange and difficult phrase, the Lord of Spirits. The Lord of Spirits. For example, you would read in First Enoch chapter 46 verses 1 and 2, There I beheld the Ancient of Days, whose head was like white wool, and with him another, whose countenance resembled that of a man. And then I inquired of one of the angels who went with me and who showed me every secret thing concerning this son of man. Who he was, whence he was, why he accompanied the ancient of days. And he answered and he said to me, This is the son of man to whom righteousness belongs, with whom righteousness has dwelt and who will reveal all the treasures of that which has been concealed. For the Lord of Spirits has chosen him, and his portion has surpassed all before the Lord of Spirits and everlasting uprightness. See, this common phrase found in the book of Enoch, the Lord of Spirits, may possibly be connected with or even mean the same thing as the seven spirits who are before the throne for the throne of the Lord found in our passage in Revelation but even if that were so it still doesn't give us a very clear picture of what or who these spirits are what their function is 
But rest easy. Just because John saw this vision and communicated it to us doesn't mean he understood it all. I think in some ways the passage of time has actually given modern believers certain insights into these visions that were not even available to John. But not into everything. Much of what was mystery to John remains mystery to us. And I think this matter of the seven spirits or the sevenfold spirit of God is just going to have to remain mysterious for us as well. So from here on, whenever we encounter this term, because I've given you about as much information on the subject that exists, we're just going to move on from it. So as we move on now to verse 7, let's sum it up as simply as we can. In John's vision of Revelation chapter 5, the Lion of the tribe of Judah is also called the Root of David and is also called the Lamb that was slaughtered. Any and all of these terms, their abbreviations that we we confront and the remainder of Revelation are referring to the risen Christ who is currently residing at God's right hand in heaven. That also means that when I use one of these terms I'm referring only to the resurrected Yeshua the Messiah. So in verse 7 the Lamb took the scroll from the right hand of God the Father who was seated on the throne because the Lamb was the only being, spiritual or physical, found worthy to take it and open it. And when he took the scroll, the same four living beings, the same 24 elders that surrounded and worshipped God now fell down and worshipped the Lamb. This confirms that the Lamb is divine because only the divine is to be worshipped. This all folds back to Daniel 7 where we read in verses 13 and 14, I kept watching the night visions when I saw coming with the clouds of heaven someone like a son of man. And he approached the Ancient One. He was led into his presence and to him was given rulership, glory, and a kingdom so that all peoples and nations and languages should serve Him. His rulership is an eternal rulership. It will not pass away and His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So since in Daniel, the being who approached the Ancient One, the Ancient One's God the Father, is called someone like a son of man, and it was He who was given an eternal kingdom and the rule over it, then we can see from Revelation chapter 5 that the one like a son of man must therefore be divine because clearly he's the same as the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, and the Lamb that was slain. Gosh, this isn't complicated, is it? Now, This may not sound all that important. Not very newsworthy 
to a 21st century Gentile Christian, but to a Hebrew-speaking Jew of most any era? This connection is vital. Because in Hebrew, when one is identifying someone or something as a human, the term used, used translates literally to English as a son of man. Ben Adam in Hebrew or Baranosh in, in Aramaic. There is no term called human being. Thus in Daniel's vision, according to modern English, it was someone like a human being standing before the throne of God. However, what we just read in Revelation helps us understand that he was a divine human known in Daniel as the Son of Man, who also goes by the titles in Revelation 5 of the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, and the Lamb that was slain. Now let me again sum it up, because this is going to be critical to your understanding as we proceed in the book of Revelation. The Son of Man is the same person as the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, the Lamb that was slain, and all these are referring to the Messiah, Yeshua. We're told in verse 8 that each one of these 24 elders held a harp and gold bowls filled with incense and that the pieces of incense in the bowls were the prayers of God's people. Now this to my mind more than confirms my contention that the 24 elders represent the 24 courses of Levites and priests that had served God's temple in Jerusalem since the time of Solomon. These Levites and priests of course were Israelites not Gentiles and it's no different in heaven. See one of the jobs of Levites was to play music in the temple during certain occasions and the harp was one of the most common instruments that they used. In fact today in Israel the Temple Institute has already constructed the harps needed for when the temples rebuilt and the priesthood is reconstituted. They're done waiting in storage. The incense bowls were handled only by the temple priests even on earth, the incense was said to represent the prayers of God's people. So to imagine that these 24 elders, along with the harps and the golden bowls of incense, were any other than a course of Israelite Levites and priests, believers all, it just collapses now under the weight of evidence. Now verse 9 is a hymn sung by the 24 elders that by the way, singing is just another standard duty of Levites in the Jerusalem temple. They were to sing hymns, which were mostly psalms. And this song is called a new song because it's all about the current event of the Lamb being deemed worthy to take the sealed scroll and open it. In most respects, the song merely repeats and sums up what we've been learning 
That is, it is only the Lamb who's worthy to open the scroll. And this because he won that right through his own death. Because the wages of sin is death, and the atonement for sin bears a cost, it is by the price of the Lamb's blood that all the people of the earth from every race, ethnicity, tribe, nation, Gentile or Jew were ransomed for God. And for those who believed and were ransomed, they were transformed into a kingdom for God to rule and there to be as priests for him and meant to rule along with him. This song reminds us of what God promised Israel so long ago while they still wandered in the wilderness. In Exodus 19, we hear this. Verses 3 through 6. Moses went up to God. Adonai called to him from the mountain. Here is what you are to say to the household of Jacob to tell the people of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you will pay careful attention to what I say and keep my covenant, then you will be my own treasure from among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine and you will be a kingdom of priests for me. A nation set apart. These are the words you are to speak to the people of Israel. Now although I've addressed this before, I want to again debunk a rather ubiquitous Christian myth that all believers, mostly Gentiles, are now priests and will remain so in heaven and that we have replaced the Levites as God's priesthood. Notice in this Exodus passage that God says that Israel will be separated, separated away from all the nations, meaning Gentile nations, of course, and they will be a kingdom of priests for him. This absolutely did not mean that all Israelites, no matter how well they kept the covenant of Moses, would become priests. In fact, only certain members from one specific tribe, the tribe of Levi, would they go on to become God's official priests. All other tribes were excluded from being part of the priesthood. Therefore, to say that all Israel would become a kingdom of priests is merely, say, merely to say that all Israel would be accepted by God as his worthy set-apart servants. But that is entirely different than a specific group from the tribe of Levi that would form the God-ordained priesthood that would go on to serve God in an official capacity at his official sanctuary. Two different things. So it is when the church is called priests. As believers in Yeshua, God sees us as having become worthy to be set apart to serve him. But that in no way means we've become a priesthood that in some way replaces the temple priesthood of Levites that's going to be restored. Nor will it apply to what occurs in the millennial kingdom 
and not even in heaven. We'll pick up with verse 10 and complete chapter 5 next time.